Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, September 29th, and today Tara Palmieri is here with some insight on which city might land the Democratic Convention in 2024. Every four years, these bids are fraught with political tension and insider sniping, and the question of whether Joe Biden will run again is adding an extra layer of intrigue this time around. And later on, Tina Wynn comes on to discuss how Tucker Carlson's far-right demagoguery on the war between Russia and Ukraine fits into a broader pattern of isolationism within the GOP. We hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the Powers That Be. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri, who's got all the good political gossip as always. And this time we're talking about where the Democratic Convention might be in 2024. Um, This is always like a sort of inside D.C. parlor game, but it matters. I mean, like campaigns think about what states are in play. Obviously, every state has different political interests and things that are pulling the Democratic coalition apart as they figure out these bids. It's a very interesting story, actually. Tara, what are the cities that have submitted bids to host the DNC uh, in 2024? So the top contenders right now are uh, Houston, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, Chicago, and New York, New York. Is there a front runner? What I've been told is Chicago, Atlanta, possibly, are in the lead right now. But... There's like a a new complicating factor in all of this. Dobbs, the Dobbs decision. Maybe in the same way that Republicans wouldn't want to have their convention a sanctuary city. There's an argument right now that's specific to this year, to 2022, 2024, and that's the Dobbs decision. And so, you know, there are some people who are arguing that should we be having this convention, which brings $70 million into a city, into a state with a trigger law like Texas, Houston, Texas, or Atlanta, Georgia, where there's a six-week abortion ban. So they're kind of like questions about whether these states uh, represent the ethos of Democratic Party, because like you said, a lot of this is about messaging, right? And that these red, like these two, like Georgia and Texas specifically have suddenly really restrictive abortion laws on the books. Exactly. And so do we want to be supporting them? At the same time, you talk to old timers and they'll say, the DNC convention you wanted in the right media market talking to potential voters because one day this could be our territory, right? Go red, go red so we can turn it blue. Okay, they tried that in Pennsylvania for the Philadelphia convention in 2016. They didn't vote for Hillary. They tried it in, I believe, in Charlotte, in North Carolina. I don't believe they voted for Obama in 2012, right? No, they didn't. And Obama won in 08 and they, they wanted to shore up North Carolina in 12 and with Charlotte and they didn't. Yeah. And actually, I was talking to a former DNC official today. They were saying, it's just a fallacy. We've never been able to swing a state by putting our convention in a red state. It's just, yeah, it's a total fallacy. I mean, you might get some media pop for a few days in in that state, but it's just, it really doesn't have any predictive power as to winning that state. And so, like you said, Democrats have to fall back on two things. One, like all of the political interests at stake, like you're talking about. And then two, just like logistics, like, do you have hotel rooms <laughs> and right. like transportation and all that stuff? Because it's not just like delegates, it's delegates, it's media, it's protesters. It's just like tens of thousands of people will descend on whatever city wins this bit. 
Totally. So here's the other thing. People talk about a lot about like, what does each city represent, right? Like if Stacey Abrams wins in Georgia, there's a feeling like, okay, we have to put it in Atlanta, right? But then there's also this feeling of like Eric Adams, he's a centrist cop, Democrat. He's what a vision of our party. Maybe we let him throw the big party, but ultimately it's supposed to be about the president and the donors. It's a big donor boondoggle essentially, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many parties like at like interest groups are throwing. Yeah. Like the American Beverage Association will like, Get everyone tanked. Have like Lizzo <laughs> play at some arena and like everyone will get trashed. I mean, it is a party. Like you get to tr- come with your state delegation from all over the country. And like you, you know, if you're an activist, mm-hmm. you know, from, I don't know, like Utah or Nebraska, like it's cool. You get to go to the big city and you get to see like your presidential nominee speak and you get to network with all these people you see on Twitter and that go, oh, there's like Chuck Todd and there's Jake Tapper. Like it's, it's like a fun thing on that, on that side. But yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Like at the end of the day, I think these different cities putting in their bids, there are faces to these places like Warnock and, and Abrams in Georgia, Eric Adams in New York. But by the time 2024 rolls around, whether it's Biden or somebody else, like whoever the mayor of that city is will take like a backseat to totally. the nominee and their biggest surrogates. Totally. But here's the other thing. So I know that uh, New York City hired Leah Daughtry, who's very close to former DNC chair Donna Brazil to make the case, the DNC into the White House that New York should be the pick. But here's the thing, like everybody competes for this, right? They compete for this business, for this party, the millions of dollars that are thrown around. And there's a lot of money to be made. And there are Democratic operatives from those cities that want to have access to the donors that are coming through. They want to be the ones with the golden tickets. They want to be the ones to show them around and kind of have this like, personal experience and touch with people who could be very valuable to them in their careers. And it's kind of like, if you're able to show the biggest checkbooks in democratic politics or even Republican politics around your city, there's a lot of power there. And even for party planners, they make tons of money in contracts, $500,000 contracts, million dollar contracts. You want to throw a huge party at a venue that, you know, like the American Beverage Association with Lizzo. It's just like, there's a lot of money to be made. There's not a lot of oversight of it. And there's a lot of access. And yes, there's pride to having it in your city, but also it gives you access to people who make a lot of decisions. And what I've been told is there's a bit of another issue going on is that like everyone's unsure of who to really be, to who to lobby right now. Should they be lobbying the White House? Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So like if you hire, like Leah Daughtry is a good example. Like, and, And by the way, we should mention she was the CEO of the Dem convention in Philly in 2016 too. So she's got some juice, but like, I'm sure like Jen O'Malley Dillon or something like is probably at the top of that list, like the Biden's political director. Um, Right. But the DNC formally like makes the recommendation and the vote. So like, yeah, who are these lobbyists or operatives from these various cities like pushing? They're unsure. Operatives are being hired by these cities who to really be pushing. Is it Jamie Harrison, who is not really seen as the most powerful DNC chair. And there are a lot of questions about whether he's even going to stick around. Or do you pitch Jen O'Malley Dillon in the White House? But if Biden isn't running for re-election, can they really choose the city that the DNC convention is going to be in if they're not actually going to be putting their man forward? Just with the uncertainty around whether Biden is running or not, there's a lot of questions over whether the White House is really going to be the ones to make the decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think the most interesting thing isn't like, will the city have a bearing on which state votes for who in a presidential, but like what it says about the Democratic Party at the moment. 
Houston and Atlanta, both in states that Democrats would like to win. Georgia, obviously, they won in, in 2020 and, and won the Senate races there. I mean, regardless of whether Abrams wins or Raphael Warnock wins this year, I mean, it's still going to be a competitive state. It's like the symbolism of our Democrats trying to compete for red and, and purple votes, you know, and I'm of the mind they should. But at the same time, you do have different interest groups. You've got like abortion rights groups, you have labor unions, you have identity groups, you have various political operatives, you have all sorts of people tugging the party this way or that. And yeah, I mean, some people are going to be cranky if it's in Atlanta or Houston, because those states have restrictive trigger laws. At the same time, Democrats should make the argument, we should be electing Democrats up and down the ballot in these states to overturn these laws, you know, I mean, and that, that seems to be the, the counter argument there. And we should say, too, the Republicans already decided on this. They're having theirs in Milwaukee uh, in 2024. And, and that's where Democrats notionally had their convention during COVID in 2020. And that says where Republicans want to compete. I mean, like, they think the upper Midwest, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, like, those are the swing states for presidential elections now after Trump. And so that's why they're competing there. So Democrats will also be kind of like responding to that. Correct. Um, they also tried Phoenix as well, but apparently Phoenix couldn't handle logistically. All those little old ladies are going to be very hot in August uh, <laughs> in Phoenix, I feel like. Um, were you at the convention in uh, 2016 in Cleveland for Republicans? No, I wasn't. I was actually still leave it, living in Brussels at the time. Oh, that's yeah, I was in Belgium. Cleveland. Um, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite convention memories was 2016 in Cleveland. Um, you know, no one was taking Trump very seriously at that point, even then when he was the nominee. And he ended up winning Ohio, so it did correlate. But some interest group had hired like a uh, third eye blind to play their interest group party for all the Republicans. This is the thing, like the conventions booked the bands uh, and the entertainment like ahead of knowing who the nominee is. And so at the time it was like, oh, like whatever, we'll play the American Wingnut Association's, you know, convention gala for nominee Jeb Bush. Like, who cares? Whatever. We'll take the, the check. Trump was the nominee. Third Eye Blind shows up. I'm there with a bunch of people. It's mostly like millennials drinking beer after hours. And like Third Eye Blind gets on and they're, they're a big 90s band. Everyone knows their hits. They start playing all these deep cuts and like all these B-sides. And like the crowd eventually realizes that they're trolling the crowd by not playing any of their popular songs. And all these Republicans start booing Third Eye Blind. And they're like, boo, fuck you. Like, play the hits. And Third Eye Blind knows exactly what they're doing. They're trolling the Republican convention. And basically at the end of the show, they were like, fuck you guys. We believe in science. We believe in climate change. And then like walked off the stage as like Republicans were like throwing like, like their beer cups and like jeering at them. It was a pretty incredible troll on their part, honestly. Um, that was a, it's hard to top a convention memory. Uh, that, that sounds epic. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it was funny. It was very funny. I, I, I never thought I would like to see Third Eye Blind. And then I was like, oh, this is really funny. Good is job. Is it weird dudes. that I want to see Third Eye Blind? Like, I love them. <laughs> I like I like Third Eye Blind too. I mean, like if you grew up in the 90s, I don't know. Yeah, why um, not? All right, Tara, keep us posted on whatever you're hearing on this. i really interested to hear who gets the convention. Cheers. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Tina Wynn about Tucker Carlson. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here with Tina Wynn. So Tina, I wanted to have you on today to talk about Tucker Carlson, who 
we should say at the outset, you know Tucker a little bit. Um, you worked together briefly when you were at the Daily Caller like a decade ago. Yeah, um, that was around the time where he was trying to launch an online counterpart to the Huffington Post that was full of rigorous fact-based journalism from a libertarian slash conservative standpoint. My times have changed. Yeah, obviously, you know, Tucker has changed a lot too over the past couple decades. He was this kind of preppy uh, Connecticut Republican archetype that he played on CNN with the bow tie. I mean, he's still that, except that now he's just like a raging populist who hates everyone he used to work with. Right. I mean, he's gone on to, to cheering authoritarianism in Brazil and Hungary, Putin in Russia. One can be both. But for those who haven't watched his Fox News program, or at least seen the clips that go viral online, it really is pretty unique, even by the standards of Fox News for some of the right wing themes and rhetoric. I mean, he flirts with sometimes and openly embraces conspiracy theories, a style of nationalism, populism that verges on outright racism occasionally. But with all that throat clearing out of the way, I've been astounded by some of his commentary on the Russia invasion of Ukraine. He's repeatedly justified it as a defensive move. He's said it was provoked by the West. And even at sometimes it seemed like he's kind of rooting for Putin to win. I'm curious because you have been reporting on the far right for years. How popular actually are Tucker's views on Russia within the GOP? There's a market for this stuff, but I would say it's limited to the far right populist stance that that's like anti-interventionist with regard to like literally anything. If you go back to the early days of the Ukraine war, when it was obviously very unpopular to say Zelensky is a hero, Putin is bad, you notice that leading up to the war, all of these right-wing populists were like, you know what? I don't care if they do a thunder run into Kiev and take over the country. This is not our problem. Not my country, not my problem. And as the war ground on in the United States, poured more money into helping the Ukrainian government and army defend itself, hundreds of millions of dollars in a tons of weaponry, the entire EU kind of like standing up against Putin and slapping sanctions onto it. You didn't quite see the populist right react to it in such a strong manner. Even at that point, Tucker who had initially said, I don't care what happens to Ukraine, I'm rooting for Putin, suddenly realized, wait a second, it's very unpopular to say that Putin is bad because look at all these atrocities that he's committing. And so he kind of shut up about it for a while. Over time, however, as the war is ground on and more aid is poured into Ukraine, you can see Tucker trying his hardest to, if not put his programming on pro-Putin footing, put it on anti-anti-Putin footing, if that makes sense. Like, he's always been anti-interventionist for the entire time that I've known him. He's been against the Iraq war. He's been against any sort of military escapades in foreign countries. This is completely consistent with his worldview, except this time he is backing a human rights abusing megalomaniac who dragged his country into a war that like literally makes no sense. Well, it seems like there's some real ideological affinities between Tucker and some parts of the right and the Russian pan-Slavic project. Not the like pan-Slavic aspect per se, but this very sort of outwardly hyper-masculine, patriarchal, traditional, orthodox Christian society that, um, you know, has this anti-woke culture. There seems to be like a real appeal to some people in the Republican Party there. It 
it's an affinity for sure. Uh, but if you marry that with an anti-interventionist stance, that just sort of makes it more potent, if that makes any sense. You can have the far right in America, the right wing populist movement express uh, admiration for, say, Georgia Meloni getting elected in Italy or Viktor Orban. But those guys aren't really committing mass genocide. You notice over the past couple of months, they've muted down their admiration for what Putin does. Uh, but they've kind of pivoted towards trying to justify why the United States should not be pouring money into this conflict. And those explanations have ranged from anything from, hey, Vladimir Zelensky has a really corrupt government to these guys are going to lose anyways. This topic was on my mind. And, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because I saw online a truly unhinged clip from Tucker's show earlier this week where he was talking about the explosion that took place that disabled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We don't know who caused that explosion. There's some speculation that it could have been Russia, that it could have been the United States, that it could have been a NATO ally. We don't know yet. Tucker jumped right to assuming that this was Biden. Biden had blown up the pipeline. And not only that, but he offered advice directly to Vladimir Putin for how he would strike back at the United States if it were him. He suggested um, Russia could really hit back hard if they, for instance, cut off the underwater internet cables connecting New York and London and effectively shut down financial markets for several days. And he seemed to be almost salivating at the possibility that this would happen. But I'm curious to get your impression. Is the Tucker worldview growing? Does it have, I mean, obviously it has some purchase on the right, but is he actually winning over people within the Republican Party to his point of view? Because I recall during CPAC, which was almost the exact same week that the invasion began, you reported back that a lot of the lawmakers who were speaking there hadn't quite figured out yet where they stood on the issue. They were still sort of getting a feel for the room. But in general, they were pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia, looking for the United States to take a hard line. Has that changed over time? First of all, I wanted to point out that I think Tucker tends to take his cues from online internet postings. If not Tucker, then his writer's room. And all of yesterday, before Tucker's show went on air, I kept seeing all of these right-wing pundits, online internet personalities go, oh my God, what if Biden actually did it? If this would be the worst thing in American history, oh my God. And then literally that night, Tucker basically said the exact same thing. As to whether the Republican Party has started tilting in the Tucker worldview. In terms of foreign policy, I think he's still beyond the pale for a majority of uh, Republicans, especially the Mitch McConnell wing of the party. I would say that he's really swung a lot of Americans over in terms of domestic policy. His views on the vaccine, his economic populism, that one time that he actually said he liked Elizabeth Warren's economic policies. Russia, I think, hasn't really gotten a lot of purchase yet. And I would say that's because, look, in the right, there's always been this anti-Russia sentiment. Like, it's been baked into the movement since the Cold War. Anything regarding Russia is automatically suspect, weird, bad. Don't, like, forget everything about the manliness of Vladimir Putin and some of his anti-woke policies. You can't really break past that suspicion. 
And when Tucker's being cited by the Kremlin of all people as an anti-American voice within America, that kind of turns a lot of Republicans off. Like you can believe that Tucker's economic policies, domestic policy, culture war policy is like the gospel. But you can also believe that Tucker is being a little, you know, salty on Russia, to put it extremely lightly. (laughs) Salty, unhinged. There's been some speculation that Tucker Carlson could run for president. I I know there's been, you know, straw polls that show him at like 1%. The number of people who actually support him when they're asked is, is pretty small. But certainly the fact that people even talk about it speaks to the kind of power he has in the culture, the grip that his demagoguery has in the media. But it does seem to me like possibly the best evidence against him having political aspirations is that this particular rhetoric on the Ukraine-Russia war is just so inherently toxic, even within large segments of the GOP. I mean, he said multiple times that he doesn't want to run and that he prefers having his show. Like, Tucker lives in this tiny little town in Maine of 100 people. He is purposefully rejected living in any major metropolitan area forever. I really don't think he'll ever leave that little enclave unless he goes, actually, no, he has a, uh, he winters in Florida. He has a lot of power already, and I think he enjoys it. And I think he would rather maintain that power than get into the heavy, disgusting, compromise-inducing world of governance, as it were. If he were to run for president, I'd be kind of shocked if he actually tried to go for it. Like, it could be a stunt in the way that like Colbert ran for president back in 2006. I really don't see it happening. I don't either, but crazier things have happened. I mean, Zelensky himself used to be an actor. It's a it's a wild world out there. But Tina, thanks for coming by. Appreciate it as always. And uh, let's do it again next week. Always, always. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.